Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we will be looking at How to Kill by Keith Douglas. I thought this poem would be relevant because it was the anniversary of the D-Day landings a few weeks ago and Keith Douglas was a poet of the Second World War so he actually died during uh, three days after the D-Day landings. That's probably why I'm doing this. Um, but I really, ideally, I think it's better to really look at Keith Douglas after other war poets and to see a sort of trajectory of war poets, starting from antiquity and from the Iliad um, and, and even the Bhagavad Gita. Because the earliest war poems... I guess all the, the, the nearly all the epic poems of the past are about war in one way or another, from the Bhagavad Gita to Beowulf to the Iliad. There's always some kind of conflict going on, and no one's really ever talking about war being bad. It just happens. It just happens, and people ride that particular wave in these classical texts. They're kind of martial texts. I think that's why. A lot of even the old sort of Middle English poems as well. Again, no one's really questioning war. It's about our duty. So, so war in, it, in its earliest evocation in poetry, it's just, no one's really saying war is a bad thing. War just happens. In fact, if anything, war is 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 where our true characters are revealed. Sometimes, if it, if anything is said there, the closest perhaps any of those ancient texts gets to questioning war is the Bhagavad Gita, where Arjuna spots many people that he loves, you know, facing him on the battlefield, and he's with Krishna, the god Krishna, and he says to Krishna, I can't go to war, I can't kill these people, I love them, how can I kill people I love? And Krishna slowly persuades him that uh, this war is part of the great plan, and the great turning wheel of karma, and we are but passengers in that, in a way, we must just do our duty, I think this is me very vulgarly summing that up so you don't really get sort of notes of dissent against war itself perhaps you see the seeds in it of the charge of a light brigade by uh by um alfred lord tennyson which he wrote in a, it's a fit of anger many weeks after um a massacre during the battle of balaclava when um in the crimean war when an artillery when when a, a um, light infantry unit was ordered to storm an artillery unit and the artillery unit was um, completely well prepared so all of his soldiers were mown down so in the poem he notably says someone had blundered and so that's a sense of he's having a go at the higher ups he was a poet laureate at the time so he had to step very carefully but he's having a go at the sort of higher up people even though the poem has a certain rhythm almost that still glorifies war the sort of metrical quality of it matches that idea of these of the glorious dead, as he calls them, the six hundred, these men charging to their deaths. He shows them to be very noble in their deaths. So in a sense the the poem perhaps condemns stupid generals and admirals and and whoever of the the strategists were rather than the men on the ground which is still pretty much the attitude that we have now actually. You might remember stuff like helpful heroes sort of around the Gulf War the Gulf War, so the Iraq War and the Afghanistan Wars. Most people now look back at those wars as, as as pretty avoidable, but perhaps we shouldn't have just charged in, especially with Iraq. 
But um, there's an interesting way that that while we get reports of soldiers doing horrible things at the same time, we and I do agree with this actually that we should at the same time we we should look after soldiers, especially when they come back from war, and we should help them um, to become stable in parts of society when they may be carrying trauma back with them and all other kinds of stuff. So we should look after soldiers in that sense, especially in the sense of their mental health in the sense that soldiers become homeless, many, so many, you know, many, many homeless are ex-military. So I don't disagree with that, but I always find there's that friction between sort of the condemning of war, but at the same time, the kind of the way in which we isolate soldiers from that condemn condemnation. Um, and if we do condemn war, then ultimately at some point we have to, um, while understanding the pressures that soldiers feel, we have to at the same time when we see something like a massacre, we know that soldiers are involved in the massacre as well. You see where I hopefully, hopefully this, I'm making a point here. I think I'm just trying not to look like a villain too much for condemning soldiers, but while at the same time saying, look, if we need to look after soldiers without a doubt, you have my agreement. But we, when we criticize war, we have to criticize the actions of soldiers as well as the people who command them. That's all I'm saying. So we move on, we move on. And so before we get to sort of all the, you know, the anti-war stuff of Vietnam, anti-Vietnam in the sixties and perhaps the anti-war sentiment we have now, um, in between, you can sort of have this process of of this scepticism of, of war and poetry. Of course, in the in the poets of the First World War, especially the poets who fought in trench warfare, and these poets of the First World War. I mean, not so much um, Rupert Brooke, um, who wrote um, his famous sonnet, "The Soldier." Now, Rupert Brooke didn't see trench warfare. He died in the Antwerp exhibit expedition. And um, I think he died from from a bite from a, a mosquito or something like that um, and got I can't remember if it was cholera or something. So he saw a bit of action, but he didn't see trench warfare. And so the poem, that poem is quite if you read the poem, it's quite um, it just sort of seems to be a poem written for people maybe at home who are feeling uneasy about the war and need that reassurance. This is not what you get from the poets of a trench warfare. So that is that is Wilfred Owen most famously perhaps um also Siegfried Sassoon and Isaac Rosenberg um among others now with um the interesting thing is 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 here the the poetry really loses its sing-song musicality in different ways you get the sort of irony and and dark humor of Sassoon and Rosenberg and you get the sort of dark imagery and the horror and the muted rhymes of Wilfred Owen. So now um we get to the Second World War and and the poetry of the Second World War isn't sorry that's me kind of cracking my knuckles in the background there as I said the Second World War. I think the poetry of the Second World War isn't as well read as the poetry of the First World War for a couple of reasons I think which is firstly the First World War is again a war if if we kind of look at the Afghanistan wars and we look at the wars um in 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 iraq especially iraq as wars that were avoidable that maybe we shouldn't have gone into in the way that we did then the first world war again is seen as the sort of one of the great avoidable catastrophes of the century a failure um not you know just a failure of countries to work out a minor crisis and, and it escalating into a major crisis for the world the first world war was was brutal and these First World War poets, I think, were the first sort of poets reacting to the war in that way. Um, but 
I think what's we one reason why we celebrate those first World War poets or that we often look to them when we think of war poetry is because yes they were critical of the war they were critical of so many things but it's a war that we are also critical of so we can I think we find it easier there's not as much cognitive dissonance and the thing about the second world war is that most of us see it as a necessary war it's Nazism <laughs> you don't get more evil than Nazism um, so Sure, we can argue that, the, that there's a massive body count with Stalin and communism. I would agree. I would agree. Body count wise, maybe com communism's worse. Maybe communism killed more people. But just, I still think Nazism is more evil. Because communism was this, sort of, the, the 20th century communism was this deluded state, you could say. Um, there was so much pseudoscience to, to go with it. So many ideas of how... Um, we could establish automation and um, which the ideas are coming back around now and they're actually a bit more, <laughs> a bit more believable now. But at the time, um, I, 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 again, I, I, I'm wondering often why not I? So yeah, communism killed a lot of people, but I think communism's aims, it was, it was the, I think what makes communism less evil, if you ask me, is that the, is for slight gap or the contradictions between the aims of communism and the outcomes of communism. So the aim of communism to put a roof in every head, to have everyone equal, um, to make sure everyone was fed and all those other things and to, to stop the, the labourer class from being exploited for their labour. You could say that's a good thing, but most people who argue against communism say it was what happened because of that, because of how it was implemented. It, it resulted in the gulag. It, it resulted in famine. It, resu it resulted in, in, in millions of avoidable deaths. Now, the difference between that and Nazism is that Nazism, it really is. This is what we want to do. We wanted to exterminate all these people. So we exterminated them. And we did it in this completely efficient, direct and intentional way. And I think that's why we can say, or I can say, that's that's why I would assert that that is the greatest evil. Because just of the intentionality of it, the awareness of what they were doing and it being the actual aims of what they were doing. So I totally understand why it was a necessary war to fight. And that is why perhaps we don't celebrate the poets of the Second World War as much, because sometimes they are still critical of these wars. Also, the way that we commemorate war and the way that we remember war in a popular consciousness, we don't, we're not critical at the same time. So be it, you know, the, the, the reverence for war, the sort of, um, the wear a poppy, um, Memorial Days, Remembrance Sunday, it's not quite it, it again the contradictions are there by the way if you go to the if you really want to see the contradiction of our attitudes to warfare then go to the imperial war museum um a visit to which can be summed up by this brief monologue oh this is terrible this is absolutely horrible all these people died all these people suffer when will we when will when will we learn as a species when will we stop this but look at that tank over there look at that tank look at that tank but all these people died and this is terrible families separated by death by um by by estrangement by a refugee crisis the human cost the human cost can never be forgotten and we must always remember and never again but look at that spitfire 
Oh, look at that Spitfire. That's how I feel when I go to the Imperial War Museum. And I think that sums up that contradiction we still have about the Second World War, which is so mixed up with these ideas of, yes, the, the good versus evil narrative that we have, even though our governments did evil, evil things in those, you know, the, those of us who were from the nations of the allies, I guess, you know, we, we won the war. How do we win the war by, um, by, by, by wrecking Dresden and Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and committing our own evils? So I, I, again, that's what I'm saying. We, we seem to be squeamish of the contradictory natures of war. And I think that's one reason why Keith Douglas in particular has not been as celebrated as other poets, even though his work has risen in prominence since the 50s. Um, a brief biography of Keith Douglas, then we'll read the poem. So Keith Douglas was, um, he was, he was educated at Christ Hospital, which is like a private school, but a charitable private school. From what I know of it, it is, it is most of the children come from scholarship backgrounds. So it's run on a charitable trust. Uh, kids come from scholarship backgrounds and then they're still sort of private, all the way fee paying students, but it's not as full on. I guess as Eton and 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 Harrow and Dulwich in that sense of absolute privilege. Um, so he went to that school. Samuel Taylor Coleridge went to that school as well. So there seems to be a sort of a, um, a good a good pedigree of poets going to that school. He then left school. He carried on writing as a poet. He went to Oxford and then he joined the army. And he felt it was his duty as a human being, but also his duty as a writer. He had to go out and know about the world. He ended up in, in the army as a commander of a tank regiment during the Second World War in North Africa. And most of his writings come from that time. So his most famous poems, such as Vergess My Nicht, which means Forget Me Not, which is one of those classic poems when they interrogate the, the you know, when he, when he comes, he, he basically um finds the corpse of his enemy in a tank and then wonder and then looks through the belongings of the enemy and it's in there is like a letter from the girlfriend and a photograph and much like other poems by by wilfred owen such as um a strange meeting it's that idea of meeting your enemy and finding you have so much in common with them while at the same time obviously trying to kill each other so he was that was his that was that's what he did. He did tank warfare. And so there's a certain surreal quality to his work just because the desert is already a surreal environment. I mean, the, the title of his collection, Desert Flowers, in itself um, plays with surrealism just because of a juxtaposition between the desert and flowers. You know, the, oh, my headphones have just flown off because I was gesticulating wildly for flowers, even though you would not see any of that. Um, what else was I going to say? I think I'll say a bit more after I read the poem. So as we analyze the poem, so, so he was, he was involved in the tank warfare. Oh yeah. I was going to bring up my notes because I always forget the name of his biography, um, that he wrote or his memoir, which is Alamine to Zem Zem. So he wrote a famous memoir and he actually, his work became more popular after that memoir about the war became more popular so he died a few days into the D-Day campaign. So he was um, he was in Europe now, again, driving, driving a tank. And I can't remember if something exploded near him in his tank or whether he got out to check something. I've forgotten the exact biographical details, but um, there was a, an ordinance or something. A device exploded and he was killed in the explosion. 
I've read a few different accounts of the details of this because I've noticed that um, a poet called Owen Shears, who I think wrote a play about Keith Douglas and has written other plays about war poets, he he said in his words, um, Keith Douglas was blown to bits. Whereas in more than one other account, it's the complete opposite. I've read that um, he was killed by a sliver of shrapnel so fine that it didn't leave a mark on his body. And I read that in a few places. Now, it could be that Owen Shears did a bit more, that, that perhaps people have accepted. Maybe, the you know, because it's really surreal, that idea of there not being a mark on his body from this ordinance that exploded because, of, exploded because of a little bit of shrapnel that killed him was so fine. It sounds not entirely believable, but who knows? But it's the kind of story which is so, there's something about the image of that that sticks in your brain and becomes part of the received story so it could be that certain other people were just repeating this fascinating story about a detail of his death and maybe actually um, Owen Shears did a bit more research and said no this is what happened to him because the Owen Shears one is obviously a bit more believable and yet there is something a bit more magical and poetic about the the other one um, you know this is this is how poets die in wars we almost want to believe so that's enough of um, the biography because I think I can talk about aspects of biography when, after we read the poem and after we analyse the poem. So let's look at the poem, shall we? Um, this is How to Kill by Keith Douglas. Under the parabola of a ball, a child turning into a man, I looked into the air too long. The ball fell in my hand. It sang in the closed fist, open, open, behold a gift designed to kill. Now in my dial of glass appears the soldier who is going to die. He smiles and moves about in ways his mother knows, habits of his. The wires touch his face, I cry, now, death, like a familiar, hears, and look, has made a man of dust, of a man of flesh. This sorcery I do. Being damned, I am amused to see the centre of love diffused and the wave of love travel into vacancy. How easy it is to make a ghost. The weightless mosquito touches her tiny shadow on the stone. And with how like, how infinite a lightness, man and shadow meet. They fuse. A shadow is a man when a mosquito death approaches. So let's have a have a little look at this poem. Let's look at what's being said first. I, I had a bit of trouble. Um, I had a bit of trouble pronouncing um, parabola. I didn't look it up. Sometimes I go on the Googles and check how to pronounce these words. It could be parabola or parabola. It's one or the other, and I don't know which. Answers on a postcard. Maybe there's a schism about parabola and parabola. The important thing is what it is. You might not know what it is. So it's kind of the arc. You know when you see a trajectory drawn out? That's a tricky word to say. Trajectory drawn out. So this kind of thing. Maybe someone's plotting the course of something. And it's sort of a curve that's made by something flying through the air. So it is It is like this The the, the circle that a thrown object or a lobbed object or a fired off object follows and 
he brings it right back to childhood right away this idea of something thrown up in the air now to be fair um he th- this is this is something that's become a bit of a cliche in film now you know someone throws something up in the air and it comes down and is caught and then all this time has passed you know so the child throws something up in the air and then it's caught again and it's the man who catches it this is kind of a, a firmly entrenched part of the of the vocabulary of film i don't think it was at the time so it's quite a surprising image, the idea of this ball flying through the air and, and his childhood passing and him catching it as a man. But I think what these images set up and what these images reveal is fate. Time is passing and this ball is following its physical, sort of its inescapable physical trajectory. So the idea of a ball flying through the air with this almost preordained curve is joined to the idea of someone growing from a boy to a man so i think we're almost questioning human freedom the idea of determinism that the you know determinism being that it's just one damn thing after another is set up here at the beginning of the poem um so yes the ball fell in my hand it sang in the closed fist open open Behold a gift designed to kill. I'm not sure what that means. I was thinking perhaps the idea of a grenade. Something in warfare, something that you throw and it and it kills. And he was killed by something like that himself. So there's that. I think that might be the idea. You know, this idea of this ball being thrown from boyhood. This playful thing of a ball being thrown. But a man catches it and it sings in his hand open, open. But something designed to kill. I automatically think of a grenade. It could be a grenade. Um, so we, we move on to the man he is now. Now in my dial of glass appears the soldier who is going to die. He smiles and moves about in ways his mother's no, his mother knows, habits of his. The wires touch his face. I cry. Now, death, like a familiar, hears. It explains itself. It is so bare. It is so without sentiment. And it is so merciless, the idea that, that, that the, the humanity of the human being that is about to die is conveyed in such an effective but spare and calculated way the way in which the things his mother knows i mean this is this cannot do anything but to but to humanize this enemy to to think about how their mother thinks of them it hasn't you know it has no greater effect than that and he knows what he's doing there's a calculatedness to this poem the way in which he's playing with the emotions of the reader so death like a familiar hears new stanza and look has made a man of dust of a man of flesh this sorcery i do being damned i am amused to see the centre of love diffused it's, just, oh, it's kind of it gives me shivers in in a good way and a bad way in a good way because it's so well written but in a bad way because it gives me the creeps um to see the centre of love diffused and the wave of love travel into vacancy. This idea of a life force, I think, the sort of life vibration of the man being undone, the centre of love diffused. Again, we think of bombs, you know, the, the, the actually life. Life is like an ordinance. Life is like something, a device that, that, that has to be neutralised. 
how easy it is to make a ghost, he says. Finally, the final stanza, which is a dramatic departure of imagery, but of course he's dramming, he's he's really drumming the point home here. The weightless mosquito touches her tiny shadow on the stone, and with how like, how infinite a lightness man and shadow meet, they fuse. A shadow is a man when the mosquito death approaches. So it's interesting where, where firstly there's the mosquito touching a shadow on the stone. Okay, we've got that image. Now he's comparing it to, you know, the weightless mosquito, the lightness of man and shadow meeting and fusing. And so finally the, the shadow is man. So it's weird because man is meeting with the shadow. And so obviously you're reading this. You've always, The poem's called How to Kill. You've read already about death in this poem. So when you read the line, how infinite a lightness man and shadow meet. So you're thinking the mosquito is meeting its shadow. And now the man, who is also something light, is meeting the shadow of death. It doesn't quite work, though, does it? There's almost like a certain dominance and control we have over our shadows. I think we always, you know, sometimes we speak about a shadow falling over us, a shadow cast upon us where we don't have control. But the idea of your own sort of shadow um, is, I don't know, just the, the idea of your own shadow, that feels like, no, you're still controlling and dictating it. So he swaps it over at the end. The image, I think it causes confusion because of this, because he says they fuse. A shadow is a man when the mosquito death approaches. So actually, that's the point, isn't it? It's the approach of death that creates the illusion. And we are an illusion created by death. Death moving against us, moving against the sun. Um, we, are, we are the puppets of death. In the context of the poem, that makes more sense than the original idea that, that man is the mosquito and death is the shadow. It swaps it over. No, no, man is now the shadow and death is the mosquito. But they become one. So maybe he's saying, I'm not contradicting myself either. These two images are correcting myself because they fuse. They fuse. They become the same thing. Um, and I, I think also I should say that the, um, I, the under the parabola of a ball, I, I sometimes read thinking of the sun as well. The, the sun, again, maintaining a course uh very much in a when you understand the basic mathematics of the universe or whatever but i certainly don't but according to physics we know which way the, the sun's going to move and keep on moving um one of the most interesting things to me going off on a little bit of a tangent here um one time i spoke to a physicist an astrophysicist at a festival and i was reading poems about evolution and i repeated the cliche about the human brain being the most complicated object in the universe, apart from the ob apart from the universe itself, and the astrophysicist came up to me afterwards and said, "Oh no, I just want to say that um, I want to disagree with that." And I thought he was going to say like something like, "The universe is far more complex than the brain," but he actually said, "Oh no, the universe is simple. We've worked it all out. We know how it began, and we know how it's going to end." But a brain? Oh my goodness, what's going on there? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, that's a little story I'll, I'll tell my kids. Um, or I'll ro roll it out when I'm on the after-dinner circuit one day. We can only dream. I'm going to drink some water. I'm not well. Got a bit of a sore throat at the moment. Um, so we'll look a little bit at the form of the poem. Um, and firstly, the meter. Under the parabola of a ball, a child turning into a man 
I looked into the air too long. The ball fell in my hand. It sang ba 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 ba. It takes a while for the meter to under the parabola or under the parabola of a ball. A child turning into a man. I looked into the air too long. The ball fell in my hand. It sang. That is pretty much the the meter of the poem. But already he's sort of moving about within that meter. There is also a really interesting rhyme scheme. He uses half rhyme, um, much like, or, or just sort of fuzzy rhymes, I guess, much like Wilfred Owen used. So when often um, it'll be rhymes where you rhyme the consonant sounds, but have a different vowel sound. And it kind of takes, it keeps the familiar, familiarity of rhyme, but it takes away that sing-song quality. So under the parabola of a ball, a child turning into a man, I looked into the air too long. So if we look at the rhyme scheme, the first rhyme is rhyming word is ball, and it's rhymed with the last word of a stanza, kill. And then the second end rhyme of a stanza is, is the second line, man. And that half rhymes with the second last line of a stanza, open. And then I looked into the air too long, the ball fell into my hand, it sang. So there's a sort of half rhymed couplet in the middle of the poem so the poem is almost like a ripple of rhyme coming out from the middle it almost and you know this idea of a shadow and the and the thing it makes the shadow touching the rhyme scheme the shape of the rhyme scheme i think gives it that little that that quality it's so so the rhymes start off far apart the first line rhymes with the last line so that's line number six then the second line rhymes with the fifth line and then the third rhyme lines third line rhymes with the fourth line and that carries on throughout the poem. So sometimes the rhymes are a bit fuller and sometimes they're a bit more muted, which is very much a character of that kind of war poetry. But I do think, I'm only thinking of that now, really, that actually that, that gives that idea of the kind of reflection, you know, so the things that are closest. If you think about a mosquito and its shadow against the wall, it's like the middle two lines of the feet of a mosquito and then you get further apart maybe and you get the ends of the leg of a mosquito i don't know or the middle bits of the leg and then you go further out and you have the, the top of a mosquito you know so the, the two bits are far apart from each other um and and so i don't know if that's intentional but it's a really interesting effect but the other effect it has is that the poem you, you have that feeling rhyme becomes more instinctual you know that you've heard that sound before, but it's sort of it's not as obvious as when you have sort of rhyming couplets or A B A B rhymes. And I think this is all part of the effect he's after. A lot of war poets, when they write war poetry, they don't um they they don't they they become as I said, they they from the first world war onwards, war poets certainly they don't go for that sing songy poetry. They're not going to go for it. They're, they're, and um, I think this is summed up nicely from something that um, Keith Douglas wrote himself, which is um, my rhythms, which you find enervated, are carefully chosen to enable the poems to read a significant speech. I see no reason to be either musical or sonorous about things at present. So I feel no need to be musical or sonorous about things as present. There's no way he wants to do singy, songy rhymes to commemorate the coldness of warfare. If we look into the meaning of the poem, I, I think there's an idea of, of determinism. 
the machine taking over and doing things for you you know so you launch um you launch a ball out of your hand but it is brute physics that takes over the the, the action and carries the ball to where it goes and when you think about how war was fought at this time so when we think about the sort of the 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 the, you know the wars before the first world war where people were still riding at each other on horseback and then you suddenly have the the trench warfare of the first world war again it's a bit more impersonal you're not you're no longer cheek by jowl with your enemy you're you know you're no longer coming into kind of very still it happens people would go over the top and stuff like that but they would normally get mown down by by machine guns but in the second world war you know again okay of course there are still battles you know when you think of d-day and stuff but then you think of tank warfare you think about people firing missiles you think about people dropping bombs technology i think in warfare technology places this great distance between the the soldier or the killer and the killed i'm going to go off on one in a minute um about this particular thing but um and so but right now, it's just I think it's that there's just this senseless machinery of war, this senseless determinism. Maybe it's how science revealed the world to be at the time as well. And uh, maybe how we are sceptical about human freedom. But I, th- but I think the depersonalized effect of his poetry creates this idea of a war being turning into something about who's basically got the best machines. And that's what war is now. I mean, now we have people sat in a in a room in texas a couple of miles away maybe or something from where from where their family are and where their kids go to school and they sit in front of a screen and they fly um, a drone over some country in the middle east and then uh, just kill someone blow something up so that's warfare now um so i one more quality about him before i go off on one and that is um One more thing about about yeah about this, which is that um, he called his poetry extro extrospective, not introspective, extrospective, and I think that's particularly modern quality of his poetry. Um, extrospection, he said, would be that rather than dwelling on my feelings, my sense, my internal state, I allow the mood to be carried and to be expressed by what is outside of me. Sort of echoes the ideas of the imagists in a way. But while the imagists were perhaps writing about our special little modern world and our place within it, he was writing about the brute facts of warfare. And I think he was wise not to let his feelings intrude. I think that was the thing. And I think there's, I think he was wise to, wise to avoid profundity. And I think the, po- the closer the, the, someone's poetry gets to war itself, the less profound it gets. Because I think profundity is, is, is a luxury I think profundity can be a pretense. Um, I guess I, I end this little bit of analysis with um, the oft-repeated out-of-context quote by Theodore Adorno, who said that all poetry after Auschwitz, after Auschwitz, all poetry is barbarity or all poetry is barbarism. And part of his meaning behind it actually was that, that poetry is, that's what civilization is. Anything that we find poetic or profound is part of the same machinery is part of the same culture that that massacres people in a certain particular agreeable and cultured way. So 
I'm getting quite husky right now. I sound like I'm being really serious, but it's more my throat is beginning to give up. So I'm go- I'm going to cut things out there and I'm going to go off on one about something that's sort of related to this poem. So um, let me go off on one right now. When I go wander off on one, it means I've left the academic pretenses of, of academic rigor behind. And now we're just going to... I don't know, let our minds fly for a very small amount of time into some other avenue. So um, when I wander off on one, there is an accurate, it's an acronym, isn't it? Wander off on one, woo. Um, So I play this sound by Ric Flair. Just to let you know that I'm wandering off on one and now don't use any of this for your assignment. Well, you shouldn't really use me for your assignments anyway. So I, I wanted to say, yes, that idea about determinism and brute physics and i wanted to go into more detail about that idea about the more that you place the more machinery but you place between the the act of of you know so in this poem he says fire and they make a ghost you know they diffuse the center of love so the the thing that sets it in in motion is that command fire when a man is when the enemy is framed when the other human being Let's not say the bloody enemy here. It's framed within the wires, which means the sort of the viewfinder. Um, I find that so. So you know, there's there's an act of will, and then there is machinery set in motion, and then someone is killed. And I've seen this in a few sort of things, but it's interesting that the, the ethical idea of this. Now, there's a very famous thought experiment about um, a trolley that's out of control on its track. And you can basically pull um, to so so the trolley cannot stop. And there are, let's say, a great amount of people, women and children or whatever else, you know, let's just say children because men and women are the same. So they're on the trolley and they're going to crash into a wall and everyone's going to die. Um, whereas there is a rotund gentleman. Um, well, actually, this is the first the first incarnation of this thought experiment was there's a quite heavy gentleman sat on a bridge <laughs> and you can push him in front of the trolley and that will stop the trolley and the people won't die. Maybe it will slow it down enough that they can all jump off without getting seriously hurt. So that was the first sort of version of that thought experiment. And most people wouldn't push the man off the bridge still because they felt they were murdering that man. But... When it was rephrased, but now, okay, the man is tied to a track. <laughs> so evil. I know I shouldn't laugh, right? I love the way scientists think about, you know, philosophers and ethicists think about these things. So the man is now tied to a track. And if you pull, so it's branching off a track into one direction, they carry on, they hit the wall, they die. The other direction, the rotund, the big gentleman is tied to the track and it will hit him, but it will slow it down and everyone can jump off. Um, so this time you don't have to push him off yourself. You just got to pull a lever and the train will switch tracks. And most people were suddenly, OK, I'll pull the lever. So they reported. And I think one reason why they pull the lever is because it places machinery between themselves and the act. They can say that, oh, I just pulled the lever, so now the tracks sort of slide over and the mechanisms of death that step into place, they can take a little bit of a responsibility off me. That seems to be the thinking, whereas if it's my hand pushing him in front of it, then it's all me. So the more that you place between the person and the act, the more machinery you place between the person and the act, the less morally accountable they feel for the act or the more comfortable they do feel, you know, going through with the act. 
probably because there's um, also our empathetic impulse pushing someone off of you know we we are pushing another human being and we are interacting with another human being and that that i think will exercise our mirror neurons and our and our empathetic faculties whereas when we're pulling a lever and we can't see the guy then maybe empathy doesn't have to play as much of a role um this is also seen this is my last little bit of this little thing um which is the the um i always sort of, i always think about this in um, james bond films where you know the, the baddie never sh- just shoots the guy they kind of pull a lever and then the person falls through the floor and sometimes they go down a little slide and they um, fall into a pool with a shark or piranhas in it and then they're eaten or killed. And what we often find is there's always a lever pulled by the baddie or a button pressed. The baddie never just pulls a gun out and shoots the dude. The baddie's always just like, aha, stand over here a second and then pulls the lever. I mean, this is obviously satirized in the Austin Powers films. Um, but I think it almost sort of talks about like i think the point it's making is is that people in power don't like getting their hands dirty do they and executives also don't like getting you know be they politicians or executives they don't like getting their hands dirty so i think sometimes believers stand for i don't know either infantry that you've commanded or i don't know whatever instruments of war or i don't know something far more brutal than than instruments of war and soldiers um middle management in the sense that you know an executive says i want to fire someone and i've got to fire this many people they never do it themselves they kind of issue this dictum it goes down to someone else they're the ones who have to choose the redundancies and so on so sometimes other people become the machinery as well that kind of dilutes the ethical responsibility of the act if you feel ethically responsibly inclined to um spread the word about this podcast then uh, i would be very grateful that you do it smooth as butter Hey, the way I segged into that. Yeah, because it's that's it. I'm done for now. I've got to run out the flat again. So um, thank you for listening. It's always great to listen. It's um, always great when people share this podcast and when they leave nice reviews on iTunes about this podcast. You'd really help the podcast if you do either of those things. Even if sharing just means talking to someone else and saying you should listen to this. It's really good. If you want to contact me about anything, you can meet me on Twitter at Poet Nile, P-O-E-T-N-I-A-L-L, P-O-E-T-N-I-A-L-L. Or Rusty Sonnets, all one word, no fancy punctuation, just Rusty Sonnets at gmail.com. You can contact me that way as well. Hope you have a good one. Um, See you next week and I hope you enjoyed this one. Cheers.